Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to the Nothing But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, have you heard any good <laughs> April Fool's jokes? You know, I think I did. I think I heard a good one about Bruce touring with the 92 band. Yeah, that was really it good. To, <laughs> it seemed to get some people roped in, I'll, I'll say that. We meant it all in good fun. If you don't know what we're talking about, we did do a Twitter April Fool's joke announcing that we had information that Bruce was going to be reuniting the 92-93 band to perform the 30th anniversary of Human Touch and Lucky Town next year in 2022. <laughs> it really took off <laughs> in a surprising way. I guess you know people read Spring Scene and Tour and... I don't want to say critical thinking skills go out the go out the window, but certainly people want to believe and don't look at the calendar quite as quickly as they should have. The thing with any April Fool's joke, of course, is you got to have a little bit of reality in it so that it is going to fool some people. That's the whole point of the joke. <laughs> if it was totally ludicrous and people were like, oh, that's totally ridiculous and that's not going to happen, then it's no fun. <laughs> so again, it was meant all in good fun and we hope uh, nobody was upset about it. Uh, we, we we mostly got positive feedback. People seemed to think it was funny, but there were some people who were a little uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, bent out of shape. Well, it's been, it's someone pointed out it's been kind of a crappy year. So maybe uh, that kind of April Fool's joke isn't, uh, wasn't appreciated, but see, to me, that's any- all the more reason to do it. And, and they were all over the place. I mean, the yeah. governor of Delaware did a, <laughs> an April Fool's joke that said that Delaware was merging with New Jersey to become a new state called New Delaware. In fact, I later on in the day when people started to believe the tour tweet was saying that the tour would begin in New Delaware and referred people to the uh, new Delaware yeah. governor's tweet. So it was all in good fun, as we say, and uh, <laughs> we'll probably do well, it again next year now. Well, it's one of our most popular tweets ever. Yes, so, and we did, um, we did get the attention of an E Street Bad member. <laughs> That was pretty big. That's all. It's always big to me when when an East, Re- East reader picks up uh, a fan tweet. So I'm always jealous of that. And now we've it's happened to us. Steve denied it was true. And uh, Steve, he, <laughs> as we said on Twitter, we we adore you. <laughs> but we we got you. <laughs> anyway, there was a new archive this week. I think we should discuss big one. I, well, I say it's a big one. A lot of people gonna would would say, yeah. It's all. It's the same as the previous LA '88 release, but with one song. But that's a big song. Well, two episodes ago, you predicted exactly what the release would be. At least the next one from the Tunnel Tour, and it, and it was Los Angeles '1988. And you're correct. The <laughs> one change is across the borderline, and it is. You, perhaps we overuse this word, but it is really on point here. It is magnificent. That song. It's absolutely gorgeous. Bruce sings it. So delicate, delicately, and the band, I mean, uh, Nils is in there playing beautiful guitar. and Danny. Danny, Danny oh, Danny's organ is just in there perfectly. Oh, it's, a, it's an amazing release. I mean, just for that one song. And as we talked about, I think I talked about it on Twitter with, with, Back, with the guys from Backstreets, the, the L.A., the first L.A. 88 release from uh, April 23rd, which was like really six years ago now. So it's a long time, actually seven um, this one has much better. The sound pops a lot more than than the previous one. So in in that respect, it's also it's also a big a big improvement. And I noticed our buddy Eric Flanagan, who writes the Nugs essay that accompanies each release, he compared it to being like fifteen rows closer <laughs> in the building. Uh, who mixed the first one? Was that Toby Scott? I think so. Well, so you have yeah. 
Yeah, know, big improvement. I, they've we they've don't want to seem along. like we're knocking Toby Scott, but Al Schiller's mix is is far superior. Uh, they just they just pop, as I said. They're just they're in your face, but they're not overpowering. You still feel like you're at a live show. He really, yeah, Al Schiller just nails these things. Month after month after month. Is there even much more to say about these shows? We This is the one significant change, and, and it is very notable, and the sound is notable, but the rest of the show is is so similar to the other releases. Uh, do you feel like there's any anything else you want to say about it? Well, just that whenever we have one of these official releases for, for a show we already don't have an excellent quality, it is like hearing it for the first time again. That's true. Yeah, it's a standard tunnel set, but at the same time, a lot of that stuff is is pretty fresh these days, and I do I do feel that the that the Garden eighty eight release from May twenty third is the definitive tunnel show at this point. But uh, it's hard to I can't discredit this one at all. I, I put it right behind it actually. I would agree with that, and as we said in the archive episode, I just really hope that they get around to release and cry. And other than that, this tour will be pretty complete. <laughs> Probably so, unless they have that uh, that East Berlin show, which I'm not holding my breath for. And moving on to tonight's topic, it's an interesting one. We've previously covered the period we called the break from 1988 to 1992 in our fifth ever episode. And then a little later on in the first season, we did an episode that looked at the various recording sessions Bruce held in 1994 and 1995. Of course, in between those two episodes fall the Human Touch and Lucky Town period. And tonight we're going to take a look at Human Touch, which is definitely a flashpoint of a record for the fan base. (laughs) Yeah, I got a lot of people love it. Uh, a lot of people don't. <laughs> and you got a lot of people in the middle saying, yeah, it could it's good, but it could have been better. And I, I was reading some of the reviews today. It, it was brutalized. <laughs> Where What reviews were you reading? Well, Greg Cott is always negative on Bruce, but he gave a one star in the Chicago Tribune. All right, well. Uh, if he's always negative, it's kind of hard to take to take that seriously. A lot of other people were negative on this one too, but let's let's get into it and talk about it. Well, to me, what's funny about it is that it's an album of its time, except that the time that it it's of is like 1989 or 1990. It was literally released about a year and a half too late. I was listening to the Bruce and Obama podcast today, and they happened to be talking about fatherhood in this week's episode. And really, what was a little coincidental since we're doing this now is that, of course, Bruce spoke very eloquently about Evan's birth and what it meant to become a father for the first time. And and all of this material (laughs) dates from that period. But uh, as I think we when we get into this, uh, there's some really, really solid songs here. But I, I think the emotional body of work that came from him being a father really comes on the next record or the uh companion record, I should say, Lucky Town, which I think we're going to talk about in the next episode. Yes, yeah, so I, I kind of consider, or, or I do consider Lucky Town to be the, the subsequent album. Human Touch was the album he made between the end of 89 and early 91, and then all of Lucky Town was recorded, I guess, in the summer of, uh, of, 90, of 91. He had actually finished the Human Touch album in early 91. He actually said, that's it, it's done, but he wasn't quite ready to, to, to let it go. And so he held on to it and Landau held on to it and he felt he needed one more song. And that one more song ended up being living proof. Right. So, but you know, but way before that he, he was, he worked really, really hard on the, on the human touch record. 
I guess he, he had the whole writer's block thing, and then he was writing. He joined with Roy, and they, Roy had a, had some music uh, that ended up being Roll the Dice in Real World. What's interesting to me is that he was trying to write in some generic ways, like to write in write in a certain genre, like I would call it uh, like some blue-eyed soul. And, and to me, uh, I Wish I Were Blind is basically a, a reworking of, of Roy Orbison's Crying. And, of course, we're going to get into the individual tracks shortly. I, I think we should take a look at where Bruce was, especially in the recording process. This, of course, was right after he had dismissed the E Street Band. He was working for the first time with studio musicians. And as we all know, in late 1990, he played the two Christic shows and premiered some of this material although it would wind up being a lot different on the record than the fan base expected after hearing the Christic versions. I think that is safe to say. Yes, that is very true. But of course, uh, the Christic Institute shows were, they were solo by nature and he was working on, on a, on a rock album at the time. So they weren't going to, they weren't going to be in sync from that perspective. Well, you used the word a little while ago, generic and yep. i think generic does apply to a number of these songs but it was, it was bruce who used that term in the rolling stone interview from august 92 oh yeah well I, if he was going for generic i think it worked on <laughs> some of the tracks well part of part of the problem is that he was i mean he really didn't know what what he wanted to do i mean as you said he was right after he had gotten rid of the band and he still seemed to be he wanted to break free but he wasn't entirely sure how and so they get so they went straight for these exercises and in, in songwriting, trying to come up with a pop song or, as I said earlier, a blue eyed soul. And yeah, yeah, very much hit and miss, unfortunately. I, of course, listened to the record straight through, as I know you did prepping for this. And I got to say, listening to it again, I really at several points was just like, what was he thinking? I mean, <laughs> It really, and I, you know, and we generally are very, very favorable on the records, and and we're going to get into it now. And I think there's some phenomenal material on this record, some of which came out phenomenal on the actual album, and some of which, as we know, was was a misfire in terms of arrangement and production. But uh, really, if this had been the only album that had come out in 1992, uh, I think it would have been <laughs> almost a disaster. But fortunately, Lucky Town exists as well. Yeah, I think you're 100% right, and I do have this theory, or, or, I, or I just wonder, rather, if, if he had released it in, say, you know, spring of 91 or summer of 91, which I guess at one point could have been the original plan, or even further back into 1990, it would have been a lot more successful, at least with some of the singles, because at that time, the the tinkling keyboards were all the rage and in, in, on Top 40 radio, and that's what there's a lot of that on this album whereas obviously in the fall of 91 you had the grunge explosion as well as uh guns and roses explosion with use your illusion so with his the kind of music he was releasing here just it didn't seem to find a good home in in, uh, in 92 all right well let's start with the tracks individually and of course the album kicks off with what i would say is its strongest track and that is the title track human touch this is a great song, and it was a natural progression, I think, from Tunnel of Love. Uh, when the E Street Band plays the song, it is, as we we were remarking on the, uh, the Wild and the Innocent show, it, they are magnificent every time they play the song, and 
there's a lot here to like. I, I think, again, <laughs> the maybe the production was a little overdone on the actual album track. And, and that, of course, is corrected when they play it live. But overall, this is a really, really solid track. And, and I think, as I say, he's continuing the themes that he expressed on Tunnel of Love. What do you, what do you think of this track? Well, yeah, it's definitely one of the strongest tracks of, of his career, certainly the, la- the latter half. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not totally sure I agree with you on the, on the, on the production. I, I think, yeah, it could be more guitar-driven. Yeah, that's it, what I would want, yeah. Okay, so be, yeah, it could be more guitar-driven, and that's what happens when, when they play it live. And it was just a, it was a, as you said, it was a perfect segue from Tunnel of Love into this new period. I mean, get, get the certain lines, you, you know, you can't shut out the risk and the pain without losing the love that remains. That's basically the theme, the theme of this whole album here. And it's just he kicks it off uh, appropriately in that way. And listening to him with Obama today, that was a lot of the things that he was fearing at the time that he was in this new relationship with Patty. He talked about wanting to make it work on a day by day basis, you know, not looking too far into the future. Then, of course, at some point, Patty became pregnant and that was a major event in his life. So I think it's really well expressed here. Um, I, I certainly agree with you. It, it's really a killer track and and definitely one of his greatest hits for sure. Whatever small quibbles I may have with the production and whenever he plays it live, it, it really gets me fired up. Well, it was I remember I was incredibly ecstatic the first time I heard it live in uh, in Hartford in 2000. Uh, I just like erupted in in, eu- in euphoria basically. So uh, I I kind of get it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it and this was what introduced the the record, at least this record, of course, uh, Human Touch r- arrived simultaneously with Better Days. Better Days also a killer track. We'll get to that next time. Better Days did have a more of a new feel to it. If we were looking for a new Springsteen coming off the the East Street Band dismissal, certainly Human Touch did not really give it to to the audience. As we're saying, it was a natural progression. However, as we got the record and went through the record, of course, it was in many cases a vast departure from the East Street Band. Okay, you can say that. I don't think there's a lot of vast departures on this album from from E Street, nor nor on Lucky Town, to be well, honest. I, I think. I'm only talking I, about this record. Okay, well, I don't think there's a lot of uh, there's not a lot of huge E Street departure here. I think it's still in that same kind of rock vein that he that he that he had been in. Sure, I mean, no, it's you know, there's no Jungle Land or Racing the Street on here, but a lot of the stuff I could definitely vi- envision from from something from the USA sessions or even from tunnel of love that era had he gone in more of a rock direction than the singer songwriter he wanted to. I I see what you're saying. And let's move on to the next track, which I think is going to exemplify my argument here. I I think to the extent that it remained in sort of like the E street area, it was so neutered and, and, and so watered down that it, it, for me, I, I think of it as a departure just because it's a lot less successful. Maybe, may, maybe had this record been better, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what, what, do you know what I'm talking about? Are you talking specifically about Soul Driver? Or are you talking about something else? I'm talking about the. Well, we're going to start discussing it with Soul Driver because to me, this is where the record starts to go wrong. I, I just think the production on this record is so overwrought. It's hard for me to compare to anything E Street, because I just could never imagine an E Street record that sounded like this. Could Soul Driver have been a natural progression from something in the Born in the USA sessions? I I don't see it. Well, there's, 
we can we can say part man part monkey because it's there's some definitely some reggae in in soul driver and that one there is a Something new to that song. I, I I will I will agree to that. Well, yes. you know my feelings about part man, part monkey, so I'm not sure that's the right example. Well, but that's he. That's a part man, part monkey. It was a song he did you know, almost every night on the on the USA leg of the Tunnel of Love tour, and, and I mean he did record it in '92, but only on, only as a B side. And so then Soul Driver really isn't that much of a departure from from part man, part monkey. You know. No, I mean I agree with you that Part Man Part Monkey is not the is not Thunder Road by any stretch, but at the same time, it <laughs> was you. played by the East Street Band. That is true. Okay, I'll give you that one. Well, let's talk about Soul Driver. And of course, and I think we've hit on this before. Soul Driver had been played at the Christic, as we all know. It was a very dark and moody and sort of ominous sounding song when played at the Christic and and the lyrics are certainly ominous here's to our destruction <laughs> baby let me be your soul driver the song arrived now i don't th- did you hear it early because i remember at some point in in late 91 someone sent me a cassette at that point i think the entire record was circulating for some people but i only got soul driver and my buddy roger we we were in new york at the time I, it was on cassette. The only way for him to hear it was to actually drive into the city and and sit with me and listen to it. And it, Soul Driver at the Christic had been so great. And we popped the tape in and it started. We thought someone was punking us until we realized <laughs> it really was Bruce. Well, yeah, I think that was a totally different arrangement than what ended up being released. So that was really a draft in process. Um yeah, that was that was a little off. I, uh, I I remember getting that getting the same cassette and taking it to to, to a person I was at school with who was I thought was a big Bruce fan. I said, "Hey, John, you got to hear this," and he's like, "Okay." And so so he was less than impressed with uh, with the with with that direction. But it was a different, and uh, many of the songs on that tape were slightly different or more than slightly different arrangements of the final tracks, but it did have the same tone that the album version had. I mean, the bounciness, the sort of, uh, to me, and I acknowledge that Bruce has done before dark lyrics with sort of happy music, (laughs) obviously dancing in the dark Cadillac ranch, but this is way different for me. I mean, you know, and, and maybe, our perspectives would be different had we not heard the Christic version first, but the song, this song, and I'm going to be totally honest here, uh, which I generally am. This song does not work in this version at all for me. I mean, it's like painful. Well, you know, I like everything, but whenever that, the, that parlor game comes up of how would you make the 92 albums, one cohesive album, this is definitely one of the first that gets dropped for me. Um, but then, you know, listening to it over the last couple of days, I'm like, you know, this isn't, it wasn't that bad. I, I was enjoying it. And I thought that the guitars, the guitar solo on it really worked. And I was like, well, you know, it's kind of a shame. This is one of the few songs in Bruce's catalog that he's done in concert, but has never done the album arrangement in concert. Uh, I think it is very safe to say that we will <laughs> never see the album arrangement of this oh. song performed. Oh, at this point, definitely. No, no. But, you know, back in 92, I, I think they could have given it a shot. But um, but but for the tour, for the 92 tour, he did. He went back to more of the the Christic feel to it. Yes, he did. And I thought that worked a lot better. And 
he had such a killer band, the, the studio musicians on this track, Davey Sanchez, of course, Jeff Porcaro and Randy Jackson, Roy, he brought in Sam Moore, and, and that's incredible. And, you know, perhaps there was a version of the song that exists in a different arrangement. It tracks two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, if that is the case, I'd love to hear it. I, I'd love to hear if he's got one that has a little bit more bite to it, because that's how I associate the song. But this, uh, you know, as I say, was was a misfire for me. And, and I think a misfire for a lot of people. I, I don't think I'm in the minority on that. No, you're you're definitely not. It's but I think a lot of these songs on this album, well, this whole album, I have such an emotional connection to uh, from just listening to it so much that summer that it's going to be hard for me to go, yeah, that song sucks, or that song shouldn't be here, or whatever. Uh, but So now I can't envision having a human touch without it, but at the same time, as I said, if I'm going to make one album from the, from, from that era, this is that song is definitely not on it. See, I'm not saying the song sucks, because I actually <laughs> think it's a, a pretty good song, and I, and I think in the right arrangement, it, it would work better. I'm saying the arrangement sucks. and it, I, I, okay, well. What was going on, and it would be very interesting, and of course, they're not going to cover this period very much in detail. We'll see it, to what extent it shows up in tracks, too. I mean, we do believe the relationship record will be in there that was recorded with the 92-93 band later on as we described in the 94 95 episode but i just like that the man who wrote backstreets and <laughs> jungle land and born to run and darkness on the edge of town was sitting in a studio with that level of talent and they were like okay this is good let's let's put this out it, it really is mysterious because of the fact that he had the Christic arrangement and he had the arrangement that he used in on the 92-93 tour. So why did they just record that arrangement? Well, if there is one, that would be really cool to hear, as you were just as you were just saying. But they were also trying to try, you know, try something new and go in a different direction, even though it, he pretty much only had one leg he had one leg out the door and one leg still inside. Um and they just you know, it also one of the things that they had a rule with during these sessions was no piano. They didn't want anything that sounded E Street. And I don't think I don't think they went far enough with that. They, they should have applied that to to more more, more aspects of, of, of the music. All right. Well, I think we killed Soul Driver enough. <laughs> we'll move on to 57 channels. OK. Uh, and another interesting one, you see, again, I would say this is a departure from the Street Band. First of all, yes, obviously, Bruce is. is on bass, and it's very bass-driven, and this comes out of the group of songs we believe, like Over the Rise and some of the stuff that was on tracks. Going Cali. You know, this is a fun little ditty. I, I can't knock this song. I, I think that, and at some point we'll talk about the tour, I think where this song went wrong was when they tried to take this fun little ditty and turn it into some kind of platform for social policy. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that that's another discussion. Just looking at this song, it, it, it's it, it's fun. It's, you know, the, the whole, the, at the time... Uh, in the nineties, it was true. We had a, it was a lot different than today for the people who don't necessarily, for the youngsters out there, there was no <laughs> streaming. There was no, uh, there was no Netflix. There was even no Netflix for DVDs. You had a DVD player in your house and you had, Wait, not in 1992. You didn't. You're right. That was pre DVD. <laughs> I, had a, I, I had a laser disc player in 1992. Well, then you, you, you're right. You were among the lucky few, but no, yeah. that was that was the age VH, of Blockbuster yeah. and yeah. VHS tape. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah. you know, the, and when you turned on your TV, there was 
50, 60, 70 channels, whatever it was. And a lot of the channels had crap on. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, well, as we do, we go back to the Christic performance of it, mm-hmm. performances. And at those shows, he tried to make it a little fun, little self-deprecating kind of song. And I think when he recorded it in this arrangement, at least, um, we don't know. I mean, maybe there is a there was a 57 channels that sounds like you can look or something, um, but we haven't heard it yet. But he tried to make it dark and sinister, even with this or with the original studio track. The bass definitely adds some, you know, ominous tones to it. And certainly when you when you blast a gun and, and you write speaker, that makes also makes makes a statement. But he just never this wasn't the right song to do it with. Well, it's as we say, it's a transition period. And, and it's funny because you're saying he made this one darker from the lightness of the Christic and the song before we said he took from the, the darkness of the Christic <laughs> and made it way too bouncy. There did seem to be, you know, maybe this had to do with his writer's block or whatever was going on in his life. Obviously, we know that was a period of introspection. This did seem to be a time where he was having a problem getting locked in. And he's talked about that in the past where he described the genesis of these songs, particularly how Roy came into the picture. What would the world have been had there been no Lucky Town in 1992 and this album had a stand on its own? It's it's a really interesting question that's that's not answerable. Bruce coming off this long layoff and having been through these issues, he, he seemed to be a little lost here. Yeah. And well, I would say that the more the more interesting musically musical stuff that he was doing was this kind of bass driven this bass driven sound. That was a huge departure from E Street. For sure. And I can see, you know, a, a whole album with that kind of sound, even even though after thinking about it for five seconds, I'm like, well, that could be quite repetitive if that's all. If, wow. I, if all I'm hearing is the bass for you know 40 minutes, and and then he did say that it would have been a little hard to play behind because he wanted to play a regular rock show. So, you know, he tried. This this was one he you know he reached for and just didn't quite get, or didn't get at all. No, he didn't. And, you know, I think a sign of of the struggles with the writing, in addition to bring Roy in, as we know, Roy, quote, wrote two songs on this record, which was had never happened before. The next track, Cross My Heart, is a rewritten version of a Sonny Boy Williamson song. And that, of course, had never occurred on a Springsteen record before. There had been some B-sides, uh, uh, Johnny Bye Bye, of course. But on an actual record itself, the songs were written by Bruce and and they were from his imagination, his mind. And, and now we were getting some songs that were co-written with Roy. And here's one that's a, that's a rewrite. Yeah. And I actually think this is one of the this is an overlooked song. I always liked this one. I love this one a lot. I still and I still like it today despite my emotional attachment so you know please keep that in mind but this was one of the more heavier songs and i really thought it worked and i always expected it to be a regular on the tour yeah i was always surprised in 92 and we saw the two performances one was electric and one was acoustic Mm -hmm. it always seems strange that this song never popped up more and i agree this is one of the better tracks on the record and listening to it the other day Uh, it's got a little punch to it. I like the Dwayne Eddy type guitar that he's playing. And granted, this probably takes you more into the realm of what would be mainstream E Street. But to me, it works a lot better than certainly uh, Soul Driver does. Yeah, yeah. And I I was always kind of hoping that Gloria's, that crossed my heart rather, 
would show up on the Devils and Dust tour because of the, of the way the of the piano focused, even though it, they, that was not the direction they were trying to go in. But just never had, I think it was soundcheck once, but it was never done in a show. Well, and some of these songs, of course, were played on that tour and, and in, in many cases very effectively. And I think it points that there is some solid writing here, but just that whatever was going on production-wise, I, I think in an attempt to get away from E Street, it, it, they just wound up in a in a spot where it wasn't fully successful. And, and you know, as, as we go on to the next track, Gloria's Eyes, to me, this is the run. There, there's a number of songs on this record to me that could be like, you know, we could just call it like generic rocker one, <laughs> generic rocker two, and, and Gloria's Eyes. Although I, it, interesting, we can analyze the fact that the, uh, the song starts with, I was your big man. <laughs> Yeah, there was that. There was that. A lot of people thought that was kind of a dig at dig at Clarence, but I don't think it's ever been confirmed, and I kind of doubt that was Bruce's intention at the time. It seems hard to believe, and uh, uh, maybe it was a coincidence. I mean, I'm sure they knew, but <laughs> the, the the problem with the song is not that he mentions if it is in fact some kind of dig at Clarence, and hopefully it wasn't. But regardless of that. The song is just think of the river rockers and then compare it to Gloria's eyes. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not trying to be overly negative here with, with some of these tracks and, and, and there are some excellent tracks on the record, but it, this just seemed like such to me, it, to the extent that it's in the E street realm. And I think this one is it's such watered down Springsteen from what mm. we had heard in the past. And as we get to the end of this episode, perhaps the thesis of this record is would they have been better off just putting out Lucky Town alone? <laughs> There's a good chance. There's a good chance. But also when that, uh, I think it was in the Rolling Stone interview, he, he mentioned he wanted to have a lot of focus on 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 new songs. So yes. it was almost in his, it worked in his advantage that that he held on to this album just a little bit longer. So he got 24 new songs to choose from and instead of just like say 12 or 14 and then you know fill out the other half of the show with, with uh, with e-street stuff well i don't want to step on our episode that we'll do about this tour but even there it was sort of schizophrenic because as we know he did start off with a lot of new material and then by the time he got to the meadowlands he junked a lot of it and went back to the e-street material which of course prompted the famous hilburn article <laughs> criticizing bruce for relying on the e-street material during this period and then he switched back to the new material when they got to l.a not coincidentally, we think where Hilburn was based, but <laughs> was he dedicated to this material? And did they really, did Bruce really believe in 1992? Wow. Gloria's eyes is, is one of my top shelf songs. Uh, well, it's, it's doesn't have to be a top shelf song. It just has to work in the context of the show. And, and, and it did, it was the second set opener. Wait, but and, I, I'm going to disagree with you there because think about it working in the context of the record and the way that this man had struggled over putting together records in the years before 1992. Think of Born in the USA. Would, it, would 1984 Springsteen have said, <laughs> I'm going to put a song on the record that I don't feel necessarily fits or isn't my my best work? I mean, think of the songs that got left off the river. Loose Ends did not make a freaking album. <laughs> and Gloria's Eyes did. Yes. Well, it's, you know, I, I like the song. I think it's, it's definitely, it's, it's E Street, but it's, but it has a new polished sound to it. And 
you know, I have a hard time totally criticizing it now. And looking back on the, on the set list from that tour, I think the shows that that had Gloria's eyes, I'm I'm more attracted to. It, the song just doesn't have enough significance for me. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking about the weight. I'm not like it was a song that was going to change the world or something. <laughs> But just in terms of his catalog, and it was fine live. Uh, you know, when he played it, it was it was it was perfectly fine. We're going to get through a run of songs here. There is some really quality material on this record, uh, and once we leave uh, Gloria's Eyes, which hopefully people are not going to think we bash too much. Uh, hey, you know, I, I I like it. Um, you know, I think yeah, it's it's generic. I agree. I agree with you on that. It could be easily have been switched off with uh, with seven angels and no one would know the difference uh, actually seven angels is a much better song in my opinion okay um there's but, something but, about seven angels the way it, it's got a driving force to it that to me makes it more interesting than gloria's eyes okay okay i can see that i can see that but still the way i envisioned seven angels working in concert was very similar to to how i saw gloria's eyes well, we only saw the Seven Angels once. I actually, and of course, I'm comparing my memories from 2014 to 1992 and 1993. But from what I remember, I thought Seven Angels worked much better at Mohegan than Gloria's Eyes did on the 92 tour. Well, <laughs> I think that's a slightly unfair comparison. Perhaps. Well, it's, the East Street Band was on stage in 2014. Yeah, starting with that one, yeah. But the thing is, you and I are big defenders of the 92-93 band. It's not like we bash that period. And we're not certainly not going to bash Lucky Town when we talk about it in the next episode. The, to me, these songs, they don't hold up. And there are songs here. I mean, let's get to With Every Wish. Here's a song that holds up. And holds sh up. shocking that it was never played with Kurt Rahm on stage. Shocking it was not played in uh, 2005 on the Devils and Dust Tour. With Every Wish is a beautiful song. The sentiment expressed in it, with every wish, there comes a curse. It's very simple, but I, I think that that is very much in keeping with the tone of what we expect from Bruce. And the way the story is told, especially as he tells us about beautiful Doreen, I just think this is a really, really well-done song, and it sort of fell through the cracks. It, it didn't even get played on the 92-93 tour. It got played. It just wasn't played enough for us. Well, it was played once in the United States. Yeah, but it was played a kind of somewhat regularly in in Europe before that. But yeah, it's it is it's a it's a big mystery and it's a big disappointment that it didn't make it past past that first night at the Meadowlands. So, uh, what do you think about the song overall? Well, actually, I think this is one of his most autobiographical songs that he's that he's ever written. I beautiful Doreen, it, that's Julianne. Yeah, that, with Julianne. That's a good point. That's ex that's what he that's what that that verse is. It's it's him. It's he's actually it's sort of his apology to Julianne, and you know he he acknowledges that he wasn't he he wished for the big big brass ring, but yeah, he just couldn't handle some of the stuff that that went with it. There's lines at the end of the song, and though my heart's grown weary and more than a little bit shy, I, I love that so much, and I I think you're right, and. You know, this was at a period for him, as I was saying from the uh, podcast that he was he was discussing 
being with Patty for the first time and, and, and that they were having kids and stuff, you know, this, this was a very intense period for him. And, and I think there was a very fertile ground for material. I, I know you're going to argue that most of that wound up on lucky town, which is true. This is the one song from this record. As much as I love human touch, the title track, I don't think human touch could be on lucky town. I do think with every wish could be on lucky town. Yes, it has that similar sound to it. I mean, it's not very far from Fall Behind and Book of Dreams musically. and But it's more about the journey to happiness than actually achieving it and learning to live with that kind of happiness on a daily basis that is all over Lucky Town. Yeah, it's, uh, this song really should be played more. And uh, I, I would have loved to have seen it where Kurt Rahm was on stage. Yeah. They would have killed. It would have. <laughs> but... Like just to reinforce it in in that in that let's make one disc out of these two. This is always one hundred percent definite makes makes mine. See, I've never been a proponent of that whole let's make the two records into one idea. I just don't think it would work. Well, just because musically they're so different. Yes, and I and I think that basically you're talking about <laughs> exempting Human Touch, which is uh, uh, as you said a a really close to a classic it it just wouldn't fit musically for me with lucky town but basically it's it's basically the entire lucky town album plus with every wish and 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 that's my combination <laughs> all right that works that works quite well would you would you try to make a one try to make a more cohesive human touch album it is interesting that there were 14 songs on this record and of course we know he's released records that had fewer songs than that i i do think that there would have been addition by subtraction here in a couple of cases. Really, out of the batch of the first group of songs, which we already talked about, Soul Driver, to me, doesn't really work. Uh, Glorious Eyes doesn't work. But with Every Wish, you start to have a run of songs that I do think works well, although we're going to get to one of them. It works well because it's an incredible song, unfortunately, in a misfired arrangement here. (laughs) Right. Well, you're talking about real world. Let's go yes. to roll the dice first. <laughs> yeah, I am talking about real world, but let's not skip roll the dice. Which is, no. roll the dice if you're gonna if if you're gonna imitate E Street. This is a a, a a great job at it. This is not a generic rocker. Roll the dice works really well. Of course, it would fit, it it is the one song with the piano driving it. Right. It was it was one of the songs that Roy had co-written. Yes. And he had he had the music, and then Bruce put the lyrics on top of it. And that was the song, and that was one of the ones that, you know, that triggered, you know, that got rid of some of some of Bruce's writer's block, not all of it, but a good chunk of it. Now, this has been a great song in concert for 30 years. As you know, I happen to be a craps player, so I like the idea of it. <laughs> Although I will say the lines, all my 11s and 7s, been coming up 6s and 9s. There's nothing wrong with 6s and 9s, and uh, especially if you're in the middle of a roll. Uh, you don't want a 7, that's for sure. And uh, for those of us who, who like to play the numbers, and I do like to play 6 and 8, nothing wrong with a 6 coming up. You can't lose with a 6, Bruce. <laughs> well, since I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, I'm just going to smile and nod here. So imagine me nodding my head right now. I just think it's a, it's a tremendous track. It kind of sets up, you know, sets up the tour. Obviously, that was the roll of the dice that's closing the main set was a huge, that was a centerpiece for Bruce, making it about everybody needs somebody to love. Yeah. And that's what that is. You got to roll the dice and you, know, you can't lose, you know, like he says in Human Touch, you can't shut out the risk and the pain without losing the love that remains. And that roll the dice is basically that concept, you know, thrown into a whole a whole song. 
Yeah. And, and one of the problems with this record is if you take the best tracks, which are Human Touch and Roll the Dice, and we already said with Every Wish, but it's particularly Human Touch and Roll the Dice, and you said, okay, let's go back and re-record these songs with the E Street Band, they'd be a million times better. That's just the reality of it. And in a way, and I think that goes back to your point that he wasn't, he wasn't able to escape the shadow of the E Street Band that much on this record. Uh, I disagree to a certain extent for the reasons we've already discussed, but this is a track, uh, and Roll the Dice is a very good track. Uh, would it have been better with the E Street Band? Uh, we've heard it with the E Street Band. It is better. <laughs> and it is better, yes. And of course, even though I, I, I pointed to that 92 version being a centerpiece of the show and something that, that Bruce really wanted to bring out, a 15-minute version of any song, of a, especially of a five-minute song is is not my not my my idea of a perfect song. So when he did it with the E Street Band, it was a straight rock and roll version of it, and it was it was tremendous. Yeah, it, it look roll the dice a very solid song, and uh, uh, there's no question about it. And, and the versions he did in recent years, like we saw at Mohegan or I saw in Brisbane, uh, where it started off with just the piano, uh, really nicely done. Oh, yes, they were. Definite highlight for me. When you look back at the production of Born to Run and what they were able to accomplish, it's so meticulous and 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 so perfect at the end. And of course, that's why it's a classic record here. You know, again, we don't know what was going on in the studio. Were, were they sort of in a way panicking that they had a Bruce had been gone for a long time, even by 1990, 1991, as they were putting this album together. The, the time was was only getting longer and and music was changing. Were they sitting there and saying, we have to find some, some kind of sweet spot? And perhaps they were never able to fully find it. Hmm. Well, I know I was reading Brian Hyatt's book in preparation for tonight. And he was he, he was talking with one of the engineers or one of the producers. And I forget. And I don't want to miscredit this. It was either Toby Scott or Chuck Plotkin where they were they were actually very hesitant to speak up against Bruce during right. this time because we, the, we talked had, to Brian about this. Right. He had just fired the band. And so so that so this whichever producer uh, he, he quoted was saying that he felt like he could lose his job at any second. And he wasn't going to jeopardize that by standing up to Bruce and saying, no, Bruce, this song does not belong or you don't. Or you're going in the totally wrong direction with this. So surprisingly, or not surprisingly, he was—he just had too many yes men around him. Yeah, it's and we get now to real world, and and this to me is actually one of the biggest mysteries in terms of what he has released in his entire career because real world is a fucking incredible song. <laughs> yes, it is. And I, I mean, a jewel that anyone would be pr proud to write and. The fans heard it by the magic of bootlegging after the Christic, and everyone was just like, oh, my God, this is just an incredible song with so much passion. And and I think so much going into what was happening in his mind at the time. And then the album arrived. And again, much like Soul Driver, it was and I don't want to knock Sam Moore here. I love Sam Moore. I, I just don't know that Sam Moore needed to be on this track. <laughs> well, a lot of things maybe should not have been on this track, but, uh, you know, it's, I can't totally diss it. Uh, again, maybe it's my emotional attachment to it, but I thought it worked really well. It was Bruce going for, for that blue white soul thing. 
And having having Sam Moore on it definitely improved that aspect of it. But we could have done less with the tinkling of of the bells, the tinkling of the of the keyboards and the bells with the reverb. And yeah, there just there was just too much. Could have been too much going on. Oh uh, yeah, no, the, just uh, total <laughs> misfire. Just, just no. <laughs> no, and and Bruce himself has said this I, back in 2005 when you called out for it during the first night yeah. of the Asbury rehearsal, and then he did it the second night. I didn't he introduce it the second night as this was one I got wrong, and now I'm trying to get it back or something uh, like that. It's something like that, but I remember one of the ones the introductions to that song from Europe. I think it was Paris where he said, uh, we had too much stuff going on in the studio, and now I'm going to take it back. I think he actually well, mentioned, the, mentioned the bells. Well, it, 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 it's interesting that he said that, because, it, and I would love, of the many questions I would like to ask Bruce, I'd love <laughs> to sit and just listen to Real World with him right now and and ask, like, what do you think of the track? Of course, he has recorded, re-recorded certain songs. We, we've gotten studio recordings of Land of Hope and Dreams and American Skin. Letter to You has the two songs from the, from 50 years ago. <laughs> He really should do this one over. I, it's it, the song is worthy of it, and uh, it, I just find the the album version painful. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, but how do you do you just envision a studio version of the piano only arrangement, or do you? I, I don't know that it has to be the piano only arrangement. Uh, maybe there's a route into it with a sparser band arrangement. Listening to it last night, it struck me really as a tonal thing. When I listened to the recorded version, as I said, it just feels too happy-go-lucky. And if you listen to the Christic version, it, it it is much darker, and it feels like much more of a battle for the character. And, and that makes searching for the real world more dramatic to me. Uh, and uh, I, I, do, I think most people share my opinion. Well, I'm going to, you know, counterpoint. And to me, it sounds like a celebration that that they've made it. They made it through Mr. Trouble. Um, and you and me and the love we're bringing into the real world. That's a, to me, that's a, a declaration, an affirmation of I, a I celebration. I don't disagree. I don't <laughs> disagree. How would you, how would you describe the tone of the 2005 performance? Yeah, that was a lot more somber. How about in 2005, the fact that it often followed paradise? Oh, that's interesting. I've forgotten about that. But here it follows Roll the Dice. And so to me, I hear it's a celebration. And reinterpreting stuff in the live setting is something Bruce has been amazing at for his entire career. Now, of course, you know, I will say that the definitive version of this song is from the Christic Institute show. Oh, yeah, that goes without saying. Well, I had to say it. Um, so to improve upon it over even those performances would be, that would be like, like climbing a mountain. And I'm not he sure it's. It could, there, he could do it. There were some really passionate performances of the song, though, in 2005. And as we've said before, we need a Devils and Dust release yeah. that has Real World on it, preferably both Paradise and Real World. <laughs> yes, that would work. It is. It's like it's the main song from that performed on that tour on any kind of regular basis that has not been released and needs to be released. Yes, yeah, so I much. That one, that one, an incident. But but I digress into our other favorite topic. Ah, uh, yes. Well, let's not get into that now. We'll move on to all or nothing now for my remarks about generic rockers. <laughs> this is a generic rocker, but for whatever reason, I find this one a lot more fun. Yes. Yes, it is. I, I really love the 
the version that they released from the Meadowlands, July twenty fifth, ninety two. Yes, and even the hell, even the the version they did with the he did with the East Street Band in two thousand fourteen was was pretty fun. So he he had a way of taking this, and sometimes he takes songs and tries to make them into something they're not. But this one, he was he was good, and I think I think he should have stuck with this one a little bit more. And I think you just nailed it. That's what it is. Sometimes he takes songs and tries to make them into something they're not. This is a a uh, very fun rocker. He made it a fun rocker. It worked in that regard. Some of the other stuff we've been talking about in this episode are the exact opposite. <laughs> right. It's we're going to compare and contrast second set openers here. I would say all or nothing at all is a better, better second set opener than, than Gloria's eyes. And I think that that July 25th archive release uh, proves that it's, it starts off with slowly with Bruce just getting the crowd to stand up and then, you got the full full audience sing along segment later on in the song. So it you know, it was it worked. It did work. And I there's something about this song also, because it, it's less serious and, and of course there's another song on this record we'll talk about in a couple of songs, Real Man, which is also much less serious. I don't know this. <laughs> there's something when when he tries to be goofy, I can go with it more. When mm-hmm. when when you take something like 57 channels, which I don't think is that great a song, and then tries to turn it into some kind of major piece of artistic statement. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't really work for me. But when you take something that's goofy and present it as goofy, I can go with that. You know, you I, I'm fine with it. There you go. You got to have fun. Got to have yeah. fun with some with these things. I mean, Le- leap of faith is another uh, is another good example. comparison. Yeah, it's goofy. Go with it, and it works. You know, it's got the, and it's got the the drums i mean that's a that's arena rock drums right there and the guitar is just that's just fun too oh yeah i totally agree now i don't know if this song would survive the me too era well all i do is push and shove just to get a little piece of your love but we'll overlook that (laughs) i I don't see that there but um you know he's trying to get her attention that's how i yes it's it's he's just trying to get her attention trying to show her that that he He's interested in her, and he wants to to give her his his, his love, his affection, and yeah, she's oh, saying no. Oh, he wants no. to give it to her, all right. <laughs> oh God. Okay. But yeah, this is a you know, there's a three song suite here where it's all about uh, wanting to be with someone and then seeing them with somebody else, and and the heartbreak of that. And so this is kind of like the fun way to start that. Yes, it is. And the, the next song is fun as well, Man's Job. Again, nobody's idea of a classic. No, but it's, it's for me, it's fun. It's it, that work, blue-eyed, it works. Again, it's, it, it works, works it's, because it's fun. It's that blue-eyed soul thing. And I, this is a song where, had it been released in the summer of 91, it probably, wouldn't have been, it probably would have been a big hit. Because at that time, pop music was really awful. <laughs> Color Me Bad was at the top of the charts. And I think this one would have just... You know, out out romanced, color me bad to to the nth degree. You may have a point there. And, <laughs> uh, this arrived in a world where Nirvana existed. Yes, I know, I know. As I said, you know, had and this Pearl album Jam. been released earlier, it would have been could be, had had a better shot of being more hit driven. But you know, that's what happens. The, the ground certainly did change from <laughs> beneath them. There's no question about it. Yes, it did, and then. I think well, I forget where where he said it, but Bruce said, "Hey, this wasn't our time. We had our time, and we'll probably have our time again." But this isn't it. Yes, he has certainly had his time again and again since 1992. So, 
Whatever went wrong here, he he certainly got over it. Uh, these songs have certainly not been played very often <laughs> since then, that's for sure, except for Human Touch. Well, this one has actually got a few outings on the Wrecking Ball tour, and that is true. He, I think, it was it. It was Everett Bradley, right, or was it uh, Curtis King? It was Curtis King, I think. Okay. Yeah. And that, to me, I thought that worked really well. It was fun. Should they ever come up with the last night of the <laughs> Rising tour, we will hear man's job. I. That's the third that's... to last night. But thank you for playing. Oh, the third to last. Right. That was the first <laughs> night at Shea. Right. Yes, it was. Right. Okay. That was actually a really hot show. That was the one that opened with Souls of the Departed. But right. let's not talk about rising tour shows because we know <laughs> that's just not going to a good spot. There's no happy there's no happy ending with the rising tour shows. Oh, oh you know what it was? I was confusing the last night at Shea. It's actually the next track. I wish I were born. Uh, okay. All yeah. right. All right. So we can move on to that one. Yes. And this is a, another really good track. And, and, uh, the studio version is excellent. The live version in 92 was excellent. The version he played, the was that the only time he did it with the band? I think it was. Yes. It was good. I, I was a little frustrated that he truncated the guitar solo. Yeah, I, I, he could have really gone off on that. But th this, is a, this is a very, very good song. Totally agree. Um, but what I will say, here's this. Uh, back in the 90s, I guess it was around 94, 95, I put together a, a mixtape for myself. Mm -hmm. And I got a little uh, little mixing board so I can I can segue songs right into each other just like a DJ would. And I segued Crying, Roy Orbison's Crying, from the Black and White Night mm -hmm. into the, the version from MTV Unplugged or Plugged. It's the same song. It is. It is. That's, a that's okay. That is okay if you it's, do it in the right way. And he did it in the right way here. But I do want to ask him if I'm ever, if I ever get to interview the man. I said, Bruce, you know, you said Cynthia was a rewrite of Pretty Woman. Is I wish I were blind a rewrite of Crying because it sure it, seems like it. Well, it's very similar thematically, and, and and we should give Bobby Hatfield of the Righteous Brothers is on this track, and he did a great job. Uh, again, not in any way to knock Sam Moore, who I love, but I thought Bobby Hatfield was utilized better on I Wish I Were Blind than Sam Moore was on this record. And there's actually an alternate version, which I listened to today as well, oh, okay. where at, at the end... I think that was one of the the, the ver I think that was the version that circulated on that alternate tape from like 91 but there's where there's no guitar solo at the end uh, but it's Bruce and Bobby Hatfield trading off those like wailing vocals it's mm -hmm. also very highly effective. Okay, I can see where that that really would work. I don't think I've ever listened to that stuff. I know it exists. I think I have it. I've just never listened to it. Uh, but yeah, this to me this is also this was the highlight of the MTV MTV Plus yes. special. Fabulous there. This is a really good song for the same reasons that crying is an effective song. Obviously, this is a man who's very torn up that his woman has moved on and is with someone else. And he's very, very sad to see it. And, and that kind of pain. I, Bruce has remarked on this when he talked about the, the happiness doesn't sell or whatever, however he phrased it in, in regards to the 92 records. This was the song where he was not happy. <laughs> Yes, and it's one of the best songs on the on the record, so he may have a point there, or at least maybe artistically he he, he does better with the with the miserable lover song than than the happy stuff. So, and and with I wish I were blind, it ends that sweetest songs you were talking about. Now, if you could take this record 
to answer a question from you earlier, if I could start this record with human touch, jump right ahead to with every wish, follow the entire line through I wish I were blind now, I know that's only uh, about seven songs, but there you've really got the heart of a very, very good record. Okay. Uh, you know, unfortunately, some of these other songs, as we say, weren't as effective. And then after I Wish I Were Blind, we get to the long goodbye. And, and you talk, now, granted, it was expressing what he was feeling. But again, this is a pretty generic rocker. And in fact, it, it well, it's been played three times total all in <laughs> 1993. Certainly, this this one's not going to be played in New Jersey anytime soon with the with the East Street Band. No, I, I kept hoping that would, he would have played it in 92 in new jersey but i guess even at that point he knew he knew not not to cross that line yeah well and the, and the reality is I, I think you can get away with that if the song is just freaking awesome uh this song I, I i wouldn't say i hate the song but it's, it's certainly not freaking awesome i mean this is just again it's it's another song it's really it's sort of filler in a way i mean yeah. i don't want to undercut it like that it, because it is obviously expressing what he was feeling about the need to move uh from new jersey and, and we talked about this in in the 94 95 episode when he eventually did wind up going back to new jersey uh so and he's been there ever since so uh, while this may have reflected what he felt at that specific moment in time, of course, it's just totally not his reality now. No, it's well, this is the, this song is almost the, I mean, it's the music musical embodiment of the Santa Claus at the North pole. That's what yeah. this song is. So he, he was ready to, to, to kiss that goodbye, so to speak. But isn't it expressed so much better in local hero? It is. It's also better in Thunder Road and Born to Run. I mean, it's a town full of losers on pulling out of here to win. I mean, from New Jersey and Born to Run. We're going to get to that place we really want to go. That's not New Jersey. That's like the subtext of it. So, yeah, you're right. It's Unless it's a tremendous song, that kind of sentiment is not going to sit well with the home crowd. The other thing I was thinking about today is because I think Leaving Train sort of hits on the same mm-hmm. theme. And Leaving Train is a much better song. Don't you agree? <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that uh, if he dropped Long Goodbye and put on Leaving Train here, I think it, the album goes up. Oh, for sure it does. I, I don't think there's any question about that. <laughs> Funny how uh, something like that, you know. Bruce, actually, actually, Bruce said in 98 that he that he thinks that some of the stuff on this four tracks actually was better than the songs he released in 92. And that's, uh, that's he, an interesting, interesting uh, admission. Again, one wonders what was going through his head, the people around him. You may have hit on it that there was just too much yes men going on. Someone should have stepped in and said, is this really what we want to do here? <laughs> uh, I, I remember the passage from the Hyatt book you were talking about. And and there was, uh, I, I think it was Plotkin. I'm pretty sure it was Plotkin. Okay. Uh, it was him, him or Scott. I think, I think it, you're right. I think it's Plotkin. At, who, you know, was concerned about speaking up too much. But there's just something missing from this record. And we talk about his records in detail all the time. I don't think we've ever said that about one of his records before. There's certainly no record that he has put out that is this sort of incomplete, I'll say, where mm. where where the where there are some really strong tracks, there are some other tracks that don't work as well, and then there are some tracks that would have benefited, uh, as we've said, tremendously 
by some kind of alternate arrangement and, and just taking a harder look at them and saying, okay, this is not what this song should be. Okay. Well, by the way you're describing it, it's, it's almost like this is working on a dream before working on a dream. You had an album, some songs work, some songs didn't. I, I, I think that this record is different from working on a dream. Uh, see, working on a dream comes out of a different place. We, we, and we discussed this, you know, a month ago. It, working on a dream to me is, for one thing, for lack of a better word, they needed to put out product because of the Super Bowl <laughs> appearance. Right. Also, he had this batch of songs at, from Post Magic that he wanted to put out. And to me, it, 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 he's in a different space by the time we get to 2009, oh, of well, course. That's because true, we've yeah. been through The Rising. We've been through Magic. He's put out Devils and Dust. Uh, obviously, sessions. he's also put out The Seeger <laughs> Sessions. He's also put out, uh, although this was earlier, he's put out Streets of Philadelphia, which is really at home. He's just in a totally different spot. So I give much more of a pass, even though we said that working on a dream is uneven and not certainly not as successful as magic. I give that more of a pass than here, where he was emerging from the long break we discussed earlier in season one. And really they needed to make a mark here. And, and this album does not make that mark that that's basically, (laughs) like I said, the thesis is would they have been better off not putting this record out? And that is the question. But he said he's in his, in his biography, he said he was looking at it. He he, he would go back and listen to it. He considered not releasing it, but he would listen to it and go, I kind of, I like it. It's, we should release it. We should go ahead and, so just have more more songs to more new songs to play with. Yeah, I, I get that. Uh, and again, I understand where he was, and he did want twenty four new songs to take out on the road. And I guess, but as we get to these last two tracks, and and I think I'm actually as we, we discussed when seven twenty five came out, I I can go with real man. <laughs> like again, if it's goofy, if it's played for goofy, I can go with it. <laughs> if, if Goofy is presented as ultra serious, then I got a problem with it. But Goofy being Goofy, uh, you know, to me, this is just a really silly song to have some fun with. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And he gave it the appropriate stage time on that tour, which was like less than six or something. And so it was fun. It was fun, but it doesn't really. Yeah, there's eh, it's fun. But <laughs> how about that? I think it again it expresses what he was feeling at the time for Patty, or Patty, and for his own his own self. I mean, he kind of talked about Rambo gunning him down, and there was a lot of comparison of of, of Rambo to, to Bruce circa 1985. And that's true. And there was the and just the fact that if he can give find the guts to give you all my love. Well, you know, that's find- the verse I was thinking about. When the lights go down and you pull me close while I look into your eyes and there's one thing I know, baby, I'll be tough enough. To me, that's the message of the song. Yes, yes, it is. That is you're right, 100%. That's the message. Execution, a little off. But it was, right. it was fun the, the few times he played it. And well, I'm sure we'll never hear it again. <laughs> we are never, <laughs> ever hearing Real Man again. Could you, as a goof, he should do it. Could you imagine... He, you know what? He, he should open the first show back after the <laughs> pandemic with Real Man. That would be fun. I'm joking. Bring, nobody panic. <laughs> bring the horns. Bring the real live horns out, not the synthesized horns. That would be fun. <laughs> hey, I, you know, I keep uh, my dream project for, is for Bruce to go back and re-record these albums with the E Street Band and release them in, in, in full and 
hey, that'd be cool. Again, as I said, considering some of the re-recording he has done of Land of Hope and Dreams for the studio, American Skin, I don't think he would re-record both albums, but would it be a cool idea? And other artists have done things like this. And in fact, of, for, for a totally different reason, Taylor Swift is re-recording her entire earlier catalog because she wants to own the masters, but it would be cool if they went into the studio. Maybe they just picked the a best of, even though I, I've said, I'm not a fan of combining the two records. It would be different for this sort of project. It, maybe if he picked six or eight songs from these two records and recorded them with the band, sort of like he did with, if I were the priest, which worked really well. So it, it would be really fascinating to see that. I don't think it's going to happen. Oh no, definitely not. Definitely not, not going to happen. Even on the, 29th or 30th anniversary of it as we the 29th anniversary is like what thursday or wednesday i guess yes um but yeah i i can i can see the whole lucky town album being done with the e street band just straight 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 through and it would sound awesome and then we arrive at the last song which is pony boy i mean nobody can knock <laughs> this and if you heard bruce talking about the birth of evan with obama in the podcast you totally get why the song is here and i think it just stands on its own for what it is it's hard it would be hard to for us to sit here and like try and give a big analysis of this track no well my only analysis of it is that it's it's a perfect transition from the human touch record to, to to the lucky town album because throughout human touch he's he's searching for happiness he's searching for something and then with pony boy you kind of get the feeling that singing to his baby boy that he's found it and better days are, are ahead. And he actually talked about during that during the podcast where he was the late night person. He often stayed up late and Patty would be asleep. And at the 2 a.m. feeding and the 4 a.m. feeding, he'd be sitting there with Evan as a first time father. And he talked about how emotional that was and what it meant to him. And that's reflected in the song. And that's why it's on the record with this traditional closer. Yes. Yes. I mean, and it's actually in the, in the realm of Springsteen album closers, it's pretty much right there. Every, I think every Bruce album has ended with a, with a slow or softer song and this fits right in. It does. And it is a sweet end to the record. And as you say, a fitting segue to lucky town, which we're going to talk about next time. Yes. Yes. Now the, always the interesting thing for me when talking about this album is, are there any outtakes or, or stuff released from tracks or elsewhere that you would put on this album to make it better. I think we addressed that a little bit already. Certainly leave and train. Right. Leave and train. And I, and uh, I'd say probably seven angels. Now the, the bass driven songs, it, it's hard for me to say, put them on the record. I, I think when the lights go out is a good song. I don't think it would fit. And I don't know how well 57 channel fits in with the rest <laughs> of the catalog, as we were saying. So I, I wouldn't put any of those songs on. I think it comes down to really leave and train, which is the big one and, and seven angels. Well, I always go back to trouble, trouble river and 30 days out. Uh, I think those would be tremendous on this album. Would have trouble been. river was another good one. Yeah. I, I, I forgot about that. <laughs> well, that's, 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 those are the two that I, that I always go to. I, I'm thinking that, uh, 30 days out instead of glorious eyes, that would be, that'd be a good switch or trouble river instead of long goodbye. Um, or you're a real man, certainly. And I think that would have been a better album in, in that, in that respect. I would agree it, with that. Even, even sad eyes would have been really cool on this album. 
Yeah, sad. Well, is sad eyes a, a human touch outtake? Mm-hmm. Oh, for some reason, I thought that was a little bit later. Oh, sad eyes is a great track. I would definitely put sad eyes on the record. Yes, of course, sad eyes is basically a slowed down version of Man's Jaw, but you know, it, it works really, really well. It's a beautiful song. Uh, it's a lot better than several of the songs on the record. <laughs> yeah, and some in, in in Hyatt's book they were talking about that that one could have been a hit, and it, and I have to agree with that. And he certainly didn't have a lot of hits at the time, although Human Touch did rise up the charts pretty well, uh, and and Better Days didn't make much of a dent. And then after that, what the third single was Fifty Seven Channels, which that was like, oh, what were they thinking? That is that, definitely what were they thinking? Uh, and that killed it entirely. Yeah, it, I guess they were they were trying to pump up the maybe not. They were going to release the extended singles, the Stephen the Stephen remixes, and I don't I don't think any of that stuff was going to be a hit on on, on top forty radio yeah. at the time. So even something like Roll the Dice would have been more uh, appropriate. Roll the Dice was the pick. Roll the yeah. Dice was the pick. Even though I would generally move towards stuff off Lucky Town, Roll the Dice was the pick for a single. Yes, yes, it was, and but we'll never know. I can't I can't believe they even filmed a video for Fifty Seven Channels. It was a, they they went the whole nine yards on that one. Uh, well, remember, he also played 57 channels on every night. No, but also <laughs> on SNL when he introduced the records. Yes. Yeah, he, he I guess he really thought a lot of that song. Uh, and it, that was in a unique version. It wasn't like the album version. It wasn't like the eventual Steve version. It was like it was a it was a, a segue from the from from one to the other. I thought it still had the bass and it had some of the samples and it had that weird guitar thing. But it was at least nice and contained to the two two and a half minutes that that the album version was well the fascinating thing about snl was uh, of course they did two songs from lucky town lucky town and living proof and that should tell you where bruce <laughs> thought the stronger material was but it was right there the, the the one the one song that they picked from human touch is 57 channels in that performance now maybe it was a time thing also because that song happens to be shorter but again you know they could have done roll the dice they could have done i wish i were blind but whatever we're talking about stuff from 30 <laughs> years ago yeah but that's what we do Hal. that's what we do come on you know All that right. Well, and we'll be back with another exciting episode in a couple of weeks when we talk about Lucky Town. I, have we pretty much extinguished this topic? Well, we have to do the tour. I meant for tonight. Oh, yes, for tonight, yes. I thought yes. you were talking about all oh, about 92 uh, in its Oh, no, in so its much entirety. more to talk about. Right. So we're, we're going to do the Lucky Town album. At some point, we'll do the tour. And by that time, I think we would have... Uh, have exhausted it well really have covered the early 90s by then and, and <laughs> i do have to say people i get feedback on the break episode and the 94 95 episode people seem to really like those so i i think what it is is we're talking about a period that hasn't been as widely covered by other sources no even bruce himself uh, i mean good i was just reading bruce's biography tonight as i said and he really skipped over these albums and the work it was like oh i was working on new music at the same time i was fathering a child and marrying patty and he really didn't talk about the the actual albums very much no he did not of course that's that's the theme for the for that for his entire book but that's for another discussion yeah i, I think we'll leave that one for another day uh we're pretty much done here tonight so i'm just gonna wrap <laughs> it up None but the bravest presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, Apple Music, Amazon, Google. We're on all of them. If you want to interact with us on the Internet, please check us out on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. And our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. 
So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.